All right. Happy Lord's Day, everyone. All right, as we continue, <clears throat> um, starting last week and into this week, our focus on global missions. Uh, today, we're going to be in the book of Acts. So if you could, please turn to Acts chapter 20. And we'll be reading 17 to 24 this morning. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 24. Okay, if you're there, starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did, I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the, and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would humble us before your word. Give us a vision of your glorious, all-consuming plan of salvation. Show us how we can say with the Apostle Paul, that our lives are of no value to ourselves. Convict us now of wayward or misplaced priorities and accomplish what you will in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may remember from Physics 101, if you ever took physics, the law of inertia or Newton's first law. Briefly stated, it's this. An object at rest will remain at rest unless it is acted on by an external force. So that's to say, for example, the speaker stand over here will remain standing and it'll be unmoved as it is, as you see it now, unless a force like a strong wind causes it to sway or even fall over. And we saw that demonstrated a, a few Sundays ago when it, it was particularly windy and our brother June did a clutch move and saved it. But the same concept can apply to our lives. Without a greater purpose, things tend to stagnate. Routines will roll over from day to day or week to week or from year to year. And pretty soon the thought of any significant change seems nearly impossible. So what moves you? We often think about the answer to that question in terms of personal desires or likes, interests, aspirations, ambitions, and goals, or even a bucket list that you maintain. However, if your answer to that question is not tied to something greater, namely God's sovereign purpose for the world and for your life, then you might be missing the mark on what's truly significant and lasting in this life and beyond. So let's consider some of the ways that God has disturbed the status quo, AKA rock the world. At creation, he spoke into light or spoke into nothingness and by the word of his mouth, he created everything that we see with our eyes. At the incarnation, he sent his very son, Jesus, the God-man, into a dark and sin-weary world. And at the second coming, again, Jesus will disrupt the status quo, or this world as we know it, by returning on the clouds and establishing his forever kingdom. Does this move you? So this morning we're in the book of Acts and by picking up the story in chapter 20, it's almost like walking into a two hour movie at the 90 minute mark because so much has already transpired in Paul's life. We enter a scene 
here in the final leg of Paul's third missionary journey, where he's returning back to Jerusalem after having visited different parts of Asia, including spending three years in Ephesus, which was the capital of the Roman province. Uh, in verse 17, we see Paul calling for the elders at Ephesus to meet him at Miletus. And what follows in the rest of Acts 20 is Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders, his warnings and his exhortations for them to be on guard against wolves and to shepherd their young church well. This morning we're focusing on the preface to that address in verses 17 to 24, where Paul highlights the reasons for how and why he ever came to Ephesus in the first place. So we won't take time uh, to turn there, but if we rewind in Acts a bit further, you'll read about Paul's miraculous conversion in Acts 9. After Paul's conversion, he became a man who was completely devoted to God's glory, no longer to his own infamy as a persecutor of the church. God didn't save Paul simply as an all-purpose tool for general Christian ministry. Rather, we read that he cut out Paul to be a chosen instrument to take God's name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites, Acts 9.15. He called Paul to be a missionary to unreached peoples, to carry out the to the ends of the earth part of Acts 1.8. But first, let's <clears throat> clear up what we mean uh, by missions. We've talked a lot in the past couple weeks about missions and missionaries, but what do we mean by those words? When you get familiar with the storyline of the Bible, ultimately you find God's mission in fulfilling his promise to bless all the nations of the earth. Sometimes you might hear this called the Missio Dei, God's initiative in promising to Abraham that he would make Israel his chosen nation. And through that nation, all the other nations would be blessed. It's God's redemptive purposes in sending Jesus to the world apart from what the church may or may not do. Everything we refer to as Christian missions falls under that overarching missio dei, or the mission of God. So if the church is to have a passion for missions, it's because God is a missionary God. David Livingstone was a 19th century missionary to Africa. He said, quote, God had an only son and he made him a missionary, end quote. So the English word missions comes from the Latin word that means to send. It's where we get related words like missile. It travels from a launching place to its target with purpose and determination. Jesus was a missile in the hands of God the Father. And though Jesus' coming to earth is a truth for every day, it's especially precious during the Advent season when we get to renew our focus and our attention to the miracle of divine incarnation. When Jesus left the Father's side and was sent into the world. Born a child in a manger, Jesus was the centerpiece of God's mission to redeem the nations. So Christmas has a lot to do with missions. The Advent season is centered around God's sending and the arrival of the greatest missionary ever, Jesus Christ. Now, you could think that it's all true and encouraging to your soul, but what does it mean for you? Being born and raised in California or wherever you've spent most of your life at this specific time in history, it's not every day that we deliberate, should we pack up and move halfway across the globe to reach peoples that are unreached with the gospel? And frankly, it would make no sense to do so unless we see that God himself is a missionary God. He's the divine sending agent who breaks into the timeline of human history on a, on a rescue mission of divine proportions. In the Old Testament, we have prophets who God sends out to call a wayward people back to him. Just like we saw in Isaiah last week, a prophet who declared the extension of God's blessing even to the Gentile nations. So now, as we get into Acts 20, we'll look at how the Apostle Paul applied the mission of God to his own life mission. So the main goal of the passage is this. Proclaim the gospel to all peoples. Proclaim the gospel to all peoples. Let's take a look at Paul's words in verses 20 and 21. 
You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Paul's main aim among the Ephesians was not primarily humanitarian. It wasn't having a successful tent-making business. It was the proclamation of the gospel. He didn't withhold anything that was profitable, which means he taught the whole of scripture, as it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul's aim was to equip the Ephesians for every good work. We see that Paul taught publicly, implying that the gospel was an open message for all to hear and to respond to. In addition, it says he taught from house to house, meaning that there was a more targeted and tailored approach to his proclamation as well. If you read further down in 20, chapter 20, in verse 26, he says that his, his conscience is absolutely clear because he did not avoid declaring to the Ephesians the whole plan of God. Or the, in the ASV it reads, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This is what Paul did during his three years in Ephesus. So back when Jewish Christians were still leery about the Gentile church, Paul says he didn't hold anything back when it came to proclaiming the truth of God's word to both Jews and to Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in Jesus. By teaching the whole counsel of God, he understood and applied God's ancient promise of blessing through Israel to all the nations. He had even fought for the doctrine of salvation for both Jews and Greeks by grace alone, through faith alone, at the Jerusalem Council, and we can read that in Acts 15. He even memorialized this in a letter to the church at Ephesus when he wrote, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, Ephesians 2.8. So it's worth uh, turning here maybe to Romans 15 to see Paul's expression of his missionary ambition to reach the unreached Gentile people of his time. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Romans 15, and we'll read uh, verses 17 to 21. So Romans 15, starting in verse 17, Paul writes, Therefore I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. As a result, I fully proclaim the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who are told or those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Paul's life is an outworking of an ambition that is controlled by and is subordinate to God's redemptive mission. It shows us a life that's shaped by a deep-seated desire to see God's glory among the nations. So what characterizes such missionary ambition? For the rest of our time, we'll look, we'll expand on the main goal that should serve to explain the where, the what, and the how we ought to proclaim the gospel to all peoples. So proclaim the gospel to all peoples, one, wherever God sends you. Two, what, whatever God requires of you. And three, however God commissions you. Again, one, wherever God sends you. Two, whatever God requires of you. And three, however God commissions you. And so we'll start by looking at wherever God sends you, um, looking at verses 17 to 22. Wherever God sends you. 
So not long after Jesus' death and his resurrection, the Apostle Paul was the unlikely agent that God chose to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem and Judea to the ends of the earth. God moved Paul by literally knocking him off a horse as he was, walking, as he was on his way to persecute Christians. And he did a complete 180 on his life. From zealous persecutor of the church to a to prolific church planner. It's not insignificant that God blinded Paul at his conversion. This man who had once been so recklessly antagonistic toward the church had to be brought low. His eyesight needed to be taken away so that he would learn to walk by faith to where God was leading him and not by sight. Fast forward 20 some years from his conversion and in verse 17, Paul is at Miletus calling for the elders of the church of Ephesus where he had planted the church as he's on his way to Jerusalem. Now at this point in Paul's missionary career, he's already made several circuits through the regions of Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia or Greece where he had planted several churches. But prior to this, the spirit had actually prevented Paul from going any further west than Galatia. It was actually during Paul's second missionary journey, you can read about that in Acts 16, that Paul had a vision of a Macedonian man calling for help. And he took that to mean that God was opening the door to take the gospel to an unreached people. By the time we get to this chapter, Acts 20, Paul's wrapping up years of pioneer church planning that he'd done over several trips. He had just made his final visits to churches in Greece and Macedonia, and now he's headed back to Jerusalem one last time. He's on a time crunch because he wants to be in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. He sails from Macedonia eastward, bypassing Ephesus, and now he comes to Miletus about 50 miles south of Ephesus along the western coast of modern-day Turkey. He's intending this to be a brief pit stop to see the elders from the Ephesian church face-to-face -face one last time. So he calls for the, for the elders to come out and meet him. And in verse 22, Paul explains to the Ephesian elders that he's compelled by the Spirit to move past Ephesus to go to Jerusalem. The ESV and some other versions will say that he was constrained by the Spirit, indicating an irresistible pull by the Spirit to go back to Jerusalem. He doesn't know exactly what to expect, ex except that it'll involve suffering. It's not a simple hunch that Paul has, but Paul says the Holy Spirit warns him as well as prophets in every town. And note here that Paul doesn't take the premonition of danger or risk as a reason to believe that God is directing him elsewhere. Rather, the threat of danger is not God saying, is not, is not God saying no. Risk for the gospel is actually a good thing. Paul doesn't resist this strong calling of the Holy Spirit in view of what's to come. Unlike the prophet Jonah, who did everything he could to resist God's call, run away and hide himself from an unwanted assignment. Paul shows a Christ-like way of submitting himself to the Father's will, much like the way Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem in his last days, like a sheep led to the slaughter, as Isaiah says. Even though he was previously prevented from entering Asia, the Spirit eventually created a way for Paul to reach the people in Asia and even spread the gospel from there and spend dedicated years of ministry there. And now in verse 22, Paul is being led by the Spirit to return to Jerusalem. We can't miss the Holy Spirit's fingerprints all over Paul's ministry. God is the one who sends, who guides, and even restricts as a form of guidance at times. So hear what the missiologist uh, Timothy Tennant says about the role of the Holy Spirit in the early work of missions. Quote, the unfolding story of Acts is certainly about the obedience of the early church to the great commission of Christ. However, it is also the story of the ongoing initiatives of God the Father through the Holy Spirit to direct and guide his church to extend the Missio Dei and fulfill his promise to Abraham. The Holy Spirit is still the agent of initiating, calling, sending, and directing the unfolding of the Missio Dei as he was in the life 
of the early church. End quote. So, what does this mean for discerning where God is sending you today? As the Spirit led Paul, opened doors to new places, even restricted him at times, we see that God is active in calling his people into a purpose that is bigger than any one of our individual purposes. This happens primarily through God's revealed word, but even in the way the Spirit burdens us for something or someone, or frees us to pursue something on the pathway of obedience. Let's not assume that just because this is where God has us today, that this is where God wants us to be indefinitely, or because it's more convenient or just makes more practical sense, that you're an object that is destined to remain at rest. Feel the good and proper pressure of God's greater purpose nudging you, calling you to question your status quo. Long to feel God's senseness in your staying or in your going. Paul says to the people of Athens in Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Are your decisions concerning living and moving motivated by God's, by building God's kingdom or your own? So back in 2015, Tia and I were still living up in the Bay Area where we had met, we had gotten married, we had our first kid, Ian, and then we were expecting Zachary. We were getting our footing as a young family and we had found a church that we loved and where we were invested. Over time, however, we began to feel a growing burden to move to Southern California, where at the time my mom was rapidly progressing through the stages of Alzheimer's. In prayer, seeking to follow what seemed to be a God-given burden, we determined to move to Orange County as soon as God would provide a job opportunity for me. And that happened in early 2017, and we ended up moving to spend the last year and a half of my mom's life with her. It's also the occasion that God led us to become a part of the body here at BBC. And now nearly four years since that move, we're feeling that God is making the task of overseas missions work much more imminent for us something that we've been praying about since the beginning of our marriage. You know, at the same time, we're becoming more keenly aware of the sacrifices this kind of move will require. What about our kids' education? Will I have to give up my career? Who will take care of our aging parents? These are all still questions that we don't have answers to, but God continues to impress on us that the best place to be is where God is sending us wherever that may be. With the Apostle Paul's awareness that God is the one who is sending him, he has the confidence that God is also the one, is, well, that God is also with him as he steps into certain trial and difficulty. So we've seen that being on mission with God means going wherever he sends you. So now let's consider a second point. Proclaim the gospel to all peoples, whatever God requires of you. Whatever God requires of you. And we'll look at a few scattered verses um, in 18 and 19, and also 23 and 24. So after his conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul served with total devotion. Ephesus wasn't simply a box that he wanted to check off on his resume of church plants. Look back to 18 and 19, and he says from the first day that he set foot in Asia, he was with the people the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and even through persecution. This was total devotion to the work that God had called him to, that cost him three years of his life, accolades from men, his emotional energy, his comforts, conveniences, and a sense of earthly security. To fill in the story a bit more, Acts chapter 19 provides a backdrop to the kinds of triumphs and the trials that Paul experienced during his ministry in Ephesus. Through God's power, Paul performed miracles of healing, he cast out evil spirits, and even those who practiced magic and sorcery gave up their evil deeds. They burned their books and they turned to faith in Jesus. 
Right about when Paul was getting ready to leave the city, however, there was an uprising caused by the craftsmen who were, who were maker, makers of idols, claiming that Paul's teaching about Jesus was ruining their business and that their goddess Artemis was in danger of being exposed for what she really was, a fake god. And so a riot broke out in the city as the people shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they seized Paul's traveling partners. And it wasn't until the city clerk came out that peace was restored in the city. Paul was no stranger to trials like these. In 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 28, he recounts the many perils he faced during the course of his ministry. I'll read 24 to 28. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Not to mention other things, there's also the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. There is a cost to obedience. To obey the call of God in your life will inevitably require sacrifice and suffering. To endure trials and sufferings like these requires an emptying of oneself, a self-abandonment that counts the gospel as supremely worthy and more worthy than this fleeting life itself. In his life and in his death, Jesus showed his self-abandonment, his complete surrender in perfect obedience to the Father. In Philippians 2, 5-8, Paul calls on Christians to adopt the same posture that Jesus had. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of man, or existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus' obedience led to death at the hand of sinners. And yes, Paul knew that if his Lord and Savior died at the hands of sinful men, then it certainly could happen to him too. Despite continual warnings from the Holy Spirit and prophets that chains and afflictions awaited him in Jerusalem, he wasn't deterred from obeying the Spirit's calling him there. In Acts 21.13, Paul later tells his partners in ministry that he's not only he's not ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What creates this sort of conviction and fervor? Let's look at the first part of verse 24. Paul says, "I consider my life of no value to myself." Paul finds no value in his life apart from his worth to God. This is not the picture of a self-pitying man because the self-pitying man is ultimately still self-centered. This is the picture of a man who is emptied of himself. A person who holds a high value in his life, on the other hand, could not say this, nor could he obey God at all costs. Remember the rich young, the rich young ruler in Mark 10, who earnestly desired to know how he could attain eternal life, but he held too high a value on his own life and his possessions. He went away grieving because he had too many possessions. The implication is that he, he could not readily give them up. He held too high a value on his life. 1 John 2, 15 to 17 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions 
is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. There is an inverse relationship between the value one places on his own life and sacrificial obedience. The more you cling to your own life, the harder and less likely it is for you to obey to the point of losing all. But like Paul, if you can see your life as having value only to the extent that it serves your Christ-given ministry, the readier you will be to obey and freely sacrifice lesser things. This attitude that was in the Apostle Paul also characterizes missionaries from modern times. Again, David Livingstone said, said this of his missionary service in Africa. Quote, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of sacrifice, the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver but the soul and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these things are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice, end quote. And then there's Jim Elliott, a missionary who was killed trying to reach the Alca, Indians of Ecuador. He journaled this years before his death. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So proclaim the gospel to all peoples, whatever God requires of you. Take the gospel to wherever God is sending you at whatever cost. At the end of the day, we can make no sacrifice that is too big. For some of us, the cost may seem high, but there's an eternal weight of glory that far exceeds any earthly sacrifice that may be required of us in this life. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, deny yourself and take up your cross. A Christian, a Christian can tell you that this dying to self is a moment by moment battle, but there's never a question about whether it's worth it. Jesus continues in, in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. The apostles of the early church understood this. I've always marveled at Peter and the apostles' response after being flogged for speaking the truth about Jesus in Acts 5.41. It says, Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. To accept suffering as part and parcel of the Christian life is one thing, but to rejoice in it is nothing short of supernatural. Christian, do you, find, do you own the fact that Jesus requires more than just spiritual discipline, more than tithes and offerings, but your very life? In counseling, we often talk about functional gods in worship. If you don't worship the true God, then an idol may be occupying the throne of your heart. Be it self-image or security, comfort or pleasure, these, are idols. these idols will direct your priorities and your decisions if and when they become ruling desires. When it comes to the possibility that God may be weaning you from some of these things so that you might be swept up in something greater, where are the points of attachment to the world that will hurt the most when they're severed? Again, 1 John 2.17. The world with its lust is passing away but the one who does the will of God remains forever. To consider Jesus as supremely worthy means that all of these lesser things must bow down to the true king. 
The cost of obedience is high. Trials are, are inevitable and persecution guaranteed. But Jesus is worth it. The next point we'll consider is how God commissions your great commission work. Proclaim the gospel to all peoples, however God commissions you. And we'll look at verse 24, the second part of verse 24. It says, My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Here's the purpose that everything is driving towards. To finish the course and the ministry given to you. The expectation of trial and hardship could weigh heavy, but the suffering that a Christian endures in proclaiming the gospel to all peoples is not for nothing. Lest we be tempted to diminish or discredit the gospel work that we do as Christians, Paul says here in no uncertain terms that the ministry is given by the Lord Jesus himself. He says of his ministry that it was received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Though none of us today can claim to be apostles ourselves, we know that the gospel work that God assigns to each of us comes from a good savior who will not only give, us, give good things to his children, but he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing with every resource needed to accomplish the task. He works for the good of those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. He is only good to us in Jesus, and the ministry that he gives us is likewise good. Paul had a keen sense of the course of his ministry that God had given him. He uses the analogy of a marathon to describe the nature of gospel work in 2 Timothy 4, seven and eight. He writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. So there's a few things that we can gather from Paul's analogy here. One is that the gospel work is a long game. Because unless the Lord calls you home unexpectedly, this is a lifetime endeavor. Second, it's important to keep your eye on the finish line. And third, it ends with the crown of righteousness. As we know that the Lord fits together the church with people of various giftings and abilities, your course and your ministry from Jesus is going to be different from the course and ministry of another. We can't simply take the example of one faithful Christian and assume that it's going to look the same for all of us. And that's, and that's why it's important to take inventory of your unique circumstances, your giftings, your relationships, your past struggles and victories, and examine for yourself or for your family how that collection of facts can be applied toward Great Commission work. Here at BBC, we share our lives to help you know God so that you live with his joy, hope, and love. That mission is lived out in each of our individual courses, but also collectively as a body. Within the church body, your course runs parallel with those of your fellow saints. If we're to be responsible for one another's discipleship within the church, then we're also invested in one another's Great Commission work assigned by God. We ought to ask one another, what is the ministry that you've received from Jesus? How can I come alongside you in that work? And in doing so, we help each other clarify our individual commissions. Then, as it says in Ephesians 4.16, from him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for the building up in love by the proper working of each individual part. In the course of your own ministry, it's not always going to be crystal clear where God is sending you or what you should expect. In fact, Paul even says in verse 22 that he's not exactly sure what awaits him in Jerusalem, though he knows it's going to involve hardship. Even though we might not always be 
clear on the picture of what's ahead, we can know that what God is calling us to is nothing less than testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That, in summary, is the common ground purpose for every Christian's purpose in life. Which leads us then to ask, what is the gospel of God's grace such that it drove Paul to leave home to proclaim this message to the ends of the earth and centuries later still holds the same power to command our whole lives and our efforts to make Christ known. If you're visiting with us here this morning and you're not a Christian, it could seem odd to you that Christians would be so entirely devoted, so obsessed with a message that they would build their whole life around it. And if that's what you're thinking, then maybe it's worth learning about what this message is and what it requires of you. Friend, though you may not, con though you may not consider yourself religious, everyone is in fact a worshiper. The question is, what do you worship? When the Apostle Paul arrived in Athens, he saw the Greeks worshiped and offered sacrifices at the altar of an unknown God. Today's forms of idolatry may not be so overt as graven images or altars of sacrifice, but idol worship exists in the form of self-exalting and God-ignoring hearts. There is one God who is worthy of praise and worship. He is Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Using Paul's words to the Greeks in Athens, he says, God made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. God fashioned man out of dust in his own image. Man, however, chose to reject God's wisdom and goodness and exalted himself over God. This happened at first with Adam and Eve in the garden, and it continues with all of us today. Because God's holy, he must judge sin in his righteous wrath. But in his love, he sent his only son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life and yet died a sinner's death. And in so doing, he stood in our place. Because Jesus was, was judged under God's wrath instead of us, we can now be counted as righteous before God. If by faith you would turn from your self-centered ways and trust in Jesus' work for you, you can be saved. And so I invite you to consider putting away your other forms of false worship and turning to Jesus, the one who is ultimately worthy to receive all glory and honor and praise. That's the good news that the Apostle Paul spoke to the unreached people in Athens, and it's the same good news that grounds the church and its message today. And if you're hearing this message, then know that God actually had a plan in your hearing this today. Acts 17.26 says, God has even determined your appointed time and boundaries of your life. So whether you recognize it or not, that's his power and foreknowledge at work in you and for you, calling you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Not only is the gospel good news in and of itself, but the fact that God wills his good news to be spread and to multiply to the ends of the earth, that makes it amazingly good news. We see the extent of God's heart revealed in his promise to Abraham, the father of many nations, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now children, I have a message for you too. You may not realize it now, but your world is pretty small. Especially these days during COVID, when you're at home most of the week with your parents and your siblings, if you have them, weeks have gone by when maybe church was the only time during the week that you left your neighborhood. Your world is going to expand. Starting with the end of the pandemic, Lord willing, then in making new friends, visiting new places, reading books, your world will expand. What will be most important is to ask the question, what is God doing in the world and how can I be a part of that? And that's what I've been trying to show 
is that God wants to bless all the different peoples of the earth, but some don't have anyone to tell them about Jesus. God is calling you to be a part of that work. That's something to get passionate about. You don't want to live for small things. So, the task of global missions to all peoples is not yet complete. In our generation, now more than 200 years after William Carey set sail for India, kicking off the era of modern missions, we're still facing a task unfinished. Matthew 24, 14. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's a, pro it's a promise that it'll happen. And there's no way to know the day and the time, but the end will come no sooner than all people groups of the world being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters at BBC, what moves you? And what will, your, what will your next move be? So in closing, let me lay out a few possible options to prayerfully consider as you see how God is calling each of us to engage in global missions, whether we stay or go. It's not so much of a matter of if, but how. So option one, go. Probably the most obvious option, but have you ever felt a call from God on your life? to go and be an agent of the gospel to peoples who have not yet heard the name of Jesus. Aside from a long-term move, this could be through one or maybe multiple short-term trips, or maybe forego the plane ride altogether and take a trip across town to your local university where there are thousands or maybe hundreds of international students from, from countries where openly evangelism would not be allowed their few years in the US might be a window of opportunity for them to hear and respond to the gospel and, the and then to take it back home with them. Option two, send. Possibly the more preferable option for many, but likely the most undeveloped in its meaning. Sending is not simply the default for those not going. It doesn't mean that you have any less of a passion for missions than those who go. To send missionaries means active and sacrificial support through prayer, through financial means, through equipping and mobilizing. It means preparing others to go. It means communicating and understanding the needs of those sent to the field. Done well, it means holding the rope. This is what Fuller said of William Carey's commissioning to India. Quote, our undertaking to India really appeared at its beginning to me somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating a deep mine, which, which had never been before been explored. We had no one to guide us. And while we were thus deliberating, Carrie, as it were, said, well, I will go down if you will hold the rope. But before he descended, he, as it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. The idea is that it's essential for ones to be on the ground holding the rope so that others can go down. Both are needed. So Andy Johnson wrote a book on missions that offers some additional insights on engaging the nations by other means. And since most of us are not in positions of full-time ministry, myself included, one approach I find compelling is reaching the nations through your job. He says this, most of us will work a 40 hour job or so regardless of where we live. And most of us are going to meet our neighbors. We'll shop in the same places over and over and get to know folks who, who work there. Our children will make friends at school and we'll get to know their parents. We'll have lunch with our coworkers and our clients. No matter where we live, our lives will have many of these same components. Imagine then instead of doing these things where there might already be thousands of Christians, you did all this in a place where most people have never met a Christian or heard the gospel. What if you lived in a city 
that was 95% Muslim or 95% Hindu? What new gospel opportunities might that provide? So that might be a new category of cross-cultural gospel work for you. But with today's global economy and the kinds of doors that can be opened through employment or business, consider taking your livelihood to a place where Christian witness is rare, a place where a meaningful life in the church body invites questions from unbelieving neighbors, a place where you're among the unreached or at least close to the front lines, where national leaders can be raised up to take the gospel to their people with fewer obstacles. Since we're gathered here as a church today, one immediate thing that we can do, even during this service, is to pray. Over the past seven days or so, we had Zoom calls nightly to pray for medical missions in Thailand, frontier evangelization in the Amazon, gospel workers in persecuted areas, church planning in Italy. So let's not make the focus of global gospel work a once a year event, not that it has been, but the point is to hold this work as near and as relevant as the needs we see in front of us. God's mission doesn't stop at the edge of Los Angeles or California or the US, but it extends to the ends of the earth with the same urgency and importance. Our gospel work ought to reflect that. Hear Jesus' words in Luke 10:2. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So let's pray to the Lord of the harvest now. Father, your glorious cause engages our hearts. We confess that too often our lives have been too self-focused, so blind to your global mission. You tell us to pray to the Lord of the harvest. So we pray that you would send out workers into the harvest field, even workers among the saints gathered here this morning. Make us faithful goers and senders. For those already going and sending, renew them with the truth that Jesus is worth it. Accomplish the proclamation of the good news to all nations through your church. Quickly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.